This episode is dedicated to Lap Leong, who made a very large donation to our crowdfund because he feels liberals are too ignorant about political psychology. We're now over halfway to our £1,000 fundraising goal. If you would like to help us get to a grand, click the link to our Crowdpack page on the show notes and donate. If you want to help Open Country without spending money, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. So from this episode, I'm starting something different. Instead of long introductions to interviews, explaining my thoughts on it, I'm now just going to tell you who the guest is. If you want to know what I think about the interview in more depth, I'll be writing you an email every week. If you want to join our mailing list, please email open at ulixes.co.uk. That's open at ulixes.co.uk. You can also find the email address in the show notes. Anyway, in this episode, I'm interviewing Tris Brown, the Mayor of Liverpool's Chief of Staff. Uh, so Tris, uh, we once Hello. did the lightning round uh, in a bar. In a bar. Just before Christmas. Yep. Whether your answers have changed. I can't remember what they were. So, <laughs> uh, What is your favourite word? Uh, a utatubby, okay. which is a Finnish word and it means place of conversation. Which I just, I just love, I mean it rolls off the tongue, utatubby, but it's also, I just love the idea that the Finns... Who, to be fair, are not famous for their conversation, have a word for place of conversation. I mean, it's lovely. That might be a good name for a podcast. It could be. It could be a great name for a podcast. Yeah. It is a great name for a bar, which it is in Helsinki. So ah, there you go. Favorite book. Um, that's oh god, I don't know. Now I'm completely on the spot. Um, oh, I'm going to come across as a total nerd now. Um, the one that first springs to mind is it's a book about New York City written by somebody from the mayor's office. And it's how it's called How a City Works, and it goes into and it's you know it's it's pretty colourful pictures like it was written for a four year old which is about my level but it goes into very minute detail about kind of every element of the city, even down to manhole covers and what the designs on the different manhole covers mean, how, how an emergency response works when there's a problem on a bridge, how the subway network works, how the the the, the power and the gas and the the water and the electricity and and the steam kind of distribution network works and it and it's all done in a really accessible way but it's just this lovely kind of it allows you to to get a, an idea of how everything works together and how it's all yeah. interconnected in, in an accessible way and I've always wanted to rewrite it for England mm. because I think it would be lovely to have a a colourful book that goes into kind of detail about the, the mechanics of the, you know, it's not about politics it's yeah, about yeah. How, how, yeah. how things yeah. work yeah. favourite film My Life as a Dog <laughs> which, which, if you ask, oh, which uh, as a kid, um, I'm, I can't remember the name of the director now, but it's about this boy and he goes through a family crisis and uh, and there's an artist around the uh, yeah, in the small village that he's in, um, and it's just a lovely, lovely, lovely film about this this boy and kind of coming of age and kind of working out his place in the world. But um, it's one of the, it's also one of those films that a lot of actors probably not current day actors, but of my generation will also give the same answer. And I remember as a kid go, oh, he thinks it's his favorite. <laughs> I'm just like Sean Connery. Man. <laughs> you know I mean? so. 
You're not of Sean Connery's generation. <laughs> <laughs> no, but look very well. No, 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 but he was a film star when I was into films. Yeah. Now I haven't got a clue who most of these <laughs> stars are anymore. Which fictional character do you most identify with? Oh, ooh. fictional. Yeah. So James Bond. Then <laughs> can I say James Bond? Can say no, James Bond. I can say anything, can't I? Um, Leo McGarry. <laughs> people say that, but I, you know, it's that. No, I think I'm, I think I'd rather be Josh. I'm probably oh, okay. it's that you you want to say I'm like Sam Seaborn, <laughs> and then you kind of go, oh, well, I'll settle for Josh, and then you realise as you go in your life that you're more like Toby. <laughs> um, so it's uh, that's probably yeah. Take us straight to the Western references. Um, yeah, yeah. Go on. We'll go with the Western character just for fun. Okay. And James Bond in my spare time. <laughs> Who is your real life role model? Oh, that's. Yeah, that's a tricky one because I'm not sure. Well, see, you when we were in the bar, you gave me a very good answer. Oh, did I? Yeah, and uh, it's one that I really admire. But I was going to see whether you. Oh, yeah, but now I can't remember it. Um, <laughs> real life. Yeah, go on. What did I say in the bar? Uh, Michael Collins. Uh, right. Yeah, that does surprise me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I like. I, I, I'm always uh, enthralled by people who have the courage and the balls to go out there and go against um, you know the norms or, or whatever and I kind of think because you know it's like that little game you play you know if you lived in Nazi Germany would you be a, a, a co-conspirator or would you would you be one of those who you know kind of fought and of course everyone wants to be the person who goes against the grain for what's right mm. and and you know we, we like that but we, we all also hope that we, we be the ones that survive through it all you know the the vast majority of people end up getting you know in Nazi Germany kind of got killed for it <laughs> um, and we all want to be the ones that survived but I am I am enthralled by people who go against the grain for what they believe is right mm. and, and and stick to that courage I, I have no idea whether in something like Germany in the late 30s whether I would be that person, I don't know. I'd like to think I would be. Very good book uh, I read the other year. It was about Francois Mitterrand. Oh, yeah. And a big chunk of that is about the kind of grey area he occupied during the occupation. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, sort of going along with things to yeah. get by and survive. Yeah. yeah. But also leaving himself with a hand in the resistance. Yeah, yeah. With an eye to maybe the Allies winning the war. Yeah. Um, and sort of that as an example of someone who's sort of... Yeah. Yeah. And just be... I, I went to see Hamilton this weekend. Mm. So I got tickets and went down to the West End. I mean, fabulous, fabulous, fabulous show. Mm. I, you know, and that, that kind of undercurrent of Hamilton's story about how he believed so strongly... And put so much energy into that. Mm. And of course, 100, 200, however many years later, you can look back and go, yeah, he was right. You know, he is yeah. the father of the nation. He created the banking, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And you can look back. But when you're there at that time, you know, when you don't have iPhones and, you know, there are no roads and you get you know, mud on your shoes just crossing the road and there wasn't indoor plumbing. <laughs> the, the, the ability to take yourself out of current day and think, well, what should we be going yeah. for? I, 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 you know, kind of part of me wishes I was like that. I don't know if I am. And it inspires me when you kind of are able to look back at people and say, blimey, you, you stood up for something that was right and just. And, you know, you stood by it. I, I admire those people. Yeah. After 2016, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? After 2016? 
Oh, that's a terrible question. Um, I, I, I think Brexit is a very... Pro- I mean, I'm trying to be diplomatic, I guess, really. Deep down, I think it's a terrible thing. And not just because... You know, if I'm trying to be objective about it, it's like, okay, the, you know, the people of the, the country voted to leave. I don't think they knew what they, what, why they wanted to leave necessarily. I think there were all kinds of reasons. You know, I don't want to repeat the same kind of repeated tropes about all oh, people that were lied to in the bus yeah. and 350 million and all that kind of I kind of want to avoid going down those kind of almost cliches about what was wrong with it. But what is very, very clear is that even people who are extremely passionately for Brexit don't actually have a plan or an idea for how our country is supposed to look like post-Brexit. Yeah. And that really concerns me. It really, really concerns me. And and I'm not even that fussed about the... Um, was it the uh, uh, the OBR? Whoever did the recent study that basically showed whichever option we take, our economy will be hurt. And it's like, I'm not even that fussed about that. I'm all for us feeling a sense of control over our destiny. And I'm a big believer in trade and international trade and foreign relations. I was a founder member of UNESCO. I've represented the country at the United Nations in uh, in, Dakar, in Dakar in Senegal. You know, I have I have been part of the United Nations system. I am an internationalist. I am in favour of us having a better, stronger. But there is something about the way we do it that is fundamentally a little bit incompetent. Mm. And if you look at the way the Scandinavians engage with 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 other, I mean, Scandinavian countries have more need than anybody else to be plugged in into the international world. They are they they know they're too small to go it alone. Our curse is to think we're too big to depend on other people, without realizing that we are too small to go it on our own. And it's it's just a sheer a kind of mental blockage over how we are supposed to fit into the world around us, and that really concerns me. I mean, how I initially came to Remain was I've always felt that Britain isn't innately powerful. The reason why we're powerful is that we've always been able to create institutions, cultivate relationships mm-hmm. that, that we then use to boost our own power. That's how, yeah. since the end of Empire, Absolutely. that's how we've, you yeah. know, creating, creating the UN, creating We NATO. were the masters yeah. of it. And it seemed to me that Brexit, leave was a rejection of that approach that basically yeah. Britain doesn't need alliances or relationships or institutions uh, because we are innately powerful yeah. and I think that has really came up against first sort of Trump's threatened tariff war and then the scribble yeah. attack that, that actually it's like oh wait we actually do need allies and institutions and international norms for us to be powerful I, absolutely and I I guess ultimately I'm afraid of the lack of critical thinking that there is about high-level policymaking in our government. And then I guess secondary to that is the ability to talk to people and persuade people and bring people on, on board with that. But there is no real critical thinking about, you know, I, I was a, I'm a Remainer, I still am a Remainer, I'm still pro-EU in part because... We have, you know, we talk about Britain being a nation of shopkeepers, you know, that whole kind of old thing. And it's kind of like, well, who are we going to sell stuff to? Because here's a market of 350 million people. So 
but for me, it just makes sense. We would want to go and sell stuff. But, um, you know, I, uh, you know, Cameron buggered things up as well. I mean, you know, like, you know, going away to Europe and coming back and going, yeah, look, I've won some concessions. Now we can stay in Europe was just a crass political uh, mistake. But, I, you know, I, I sometimes do look at David Davis today is talking about how, he, he you know, he'll, he'll, be fine. he'll settle for a yeah. shorter transition. As if he's doing the EU a favour. Yeah. And it's like, no, I don't, what, what do you mean? You'll, it's like, what, what do you... And, and, all, and also, like... What do they think is going to happen? I, you know, it's sh- not that. Shouldn't you check first whether businesses can yeah. be prepared for a shorter transition? Exactly. Of all the people you know, whose minds would you most like to change? Ooh. Wow, we've kind of just gone through that whole Brexit thing, haven't we, and stuff. Mm. I do remember thinking a long time ago that if I ever had the money, I would like to... You know, let's say I won the lottery and I had huge amounts of money. I, w- I would love to, like kind of pay for a campaign that encourages the British to, to be a bit more open about uh, our borders and you know openness to other cultures and stuff because I do think there's for a nation for a nation that is an island you know and a great seafaring nation no less the idea that we want our borders to be smaller not larger is I think a little bit of anathema to the what we know works for our country so that's probably an extremely boring, academic type answer to that. I'm trying to think of a really funny one that I could maybe... Well, I mean, if um, you do win the lottery, if you fancy funding open country... I'll be, I'll uh, be yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm overcommitted already <laughs> on, uh, on on my lottery win, <laughs> if it ever happens. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's... I don't know. The, the big passions for me are, are kind of how we look externally to the world, but also uh, social mobility. I don't know, I think... Uh, if I had like ultimate power, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a there's there's too many. There's too many, Aaron. Okay. There's too many. When was the last time you changed your mind? Oh, if I'm honest, all the time. No, I, I've got one of those jobs where you try and look at everything in an evidence based session, but you're also mm-hmm. trying you're, you're trying to bring a sense of uh, direction. The mayor is um, is I think vastly misrepresented in the in in you know the public platforms genuinely and he's you know at the core of him is a really strong social justice kind of uh anti-bullying kind of thing um so it kind of every single day we're trying to insert a sense of well how do we how do we do things right in in sometimes an overly bureaucratic world so the result of that is sometimes people can say well we have to do x for a reason and you kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you sit down and you think about it or, you know, someone says something else and you kind of think, oh, yeah, actually, we do need to we do need to think that. And the issues of, like, rough sleeping and homeless, I think it's just one of those issues where um, you, we, we are constantly having to reevaluate what it is that we're trying to do. It's a ridiculously complex scenario because these are people in people's lives. And if people are taking too many drugs... It is ultimately their choice, but we still want to work with them yeah. to hopefully improve their life. And how you do that can mean changing your mind quite frequently about, uh, you know, about stuff. Uh, probably a bit more of a fun answer to that question <laughs> is, is that um, yeah, we've just had an event this morning introducing schools to businesses and vice versa. And um, I thought we weren't ready and I, I was forced to change my mind and go ahead with it. And it turned out really, really well, which is a credit to my staff because they, they, they were right. And we were ready to do it. If you weren't doing what you do now, how else would you try to make the world a better place? Better place. I don't. I mean, I always wanted to be a film producer. 
But, you know, the honest truth is, you know, that's all about fun. I always wanted to create, I always wanted to be an entertainer, I guess. I wanted to entertain people and give people a laugh, um, which, you know, some comedian or a clown will say that makes the world a better place. But I've ended up in politics because it draws me in to, you know, it's that cliche about, you know, political, you know, people in politics wanting to make the world a better place, all that kind of stuff. But if I wasn't doing this... I don't know, I think I'd probably have more time just to volunteer on something that just helps people. I, I think anyone who gives a bit of energy for other people is making the world a better place. And I uh, would love to have more time to volunteer with uh, with groups. Whether um, The one I'm looking at, seeing if I can be involved in at the moment, is like reading, so either to prisoners or to kids. And the idea of just helping people learn to read, because I think that has a massive difference. That was a crap answer <laughs> it was all over the place but you know I'm waffling now but you know truth pearls of truth in there so sort of get into it whenever I try and explain the difference to, to someone between the Liverpool City Region Mayor yeah the City of Liverpool Mayor yeah and the Lord Mayor of Liverpool yeah I usually have to draw a diagram right so can we start by sort of outlining uh, Mayor Anderson's role and what you do as chief of staff. Right, so City Mayor Joe Anderson, Mayor Joe Anderson, Mayor of Liverpool Joe Anderson is uh, elected by the people of the city of Liverpool, which obviously is only the borough of Liverpool. Um, there are five other boroughs in the city region, that's an important distinction. But he's uh, elected by the people of the city of Liverpool to, to run the city. And uh, that's a really important distinction ultimately between the different levels in that if you you know your your if you want your bins collecting if you want the roads to drive on if you want your street lights fixing um if you want land to be bought sold made available for housing or for business developments or for office developments if you've got complaints about your neighbors if you've got complaints about noise from your neighbors um if you want people to check on the cleanliness of your streets or your restaurants or the uh uh, maybe not the water, that's probably someone else. But, you know, it's kind of Joe runs the city yeah. and and everyone in it, um, it is, is affected by the decisions Joe makes to, to run the city. So part of the, the uh, his job is about just making sure the city is, is run as well, as well as is humanly possible. But then combined with that, oh, sorry, a very, very large part of that. I mean, I was giving those examples because they're the ones most people will, yeah. will, will, will understand. But a, a, the largest part of our budget, without doubt, is around social care. So if you think about your, your grand might need some home care help or some uh, adjustments to her house so she can get in and out of the bath or the front door or whatever, or you have a disabled child or disabled family member um, with disabilities and they need support packages, uh, people around mental health. These are all things that the council provides. I think most a lot of people think that this is a national health service type thing, yeah. but in reality it's not, and it is by far our largest budget item. Uh, but then connected to that a little bit is the how the city develops. The future of the city, the future of our city is Joe Anderson's job. Yeah. yeah? And for two reasons... Uh, not just because it, it is, is his job, but also because our what we're trying to do is spend more time doing now, and you'll see in the future kind of us talk more about this in terms of uh, kind of inclusivity and, and growth plans, is what do we what can we do now to improve our city now that makes it easier and cheaper and better for the city in the future? So where can we make investments now that pay off? 
and there's a, there's a lot of the characteristics of the city that are actually quite expensive. Government has decided not to give us any money anymore. I mean, literally, there will be no local government grant by 2020. So this notion that if you think government is paying for any of the services you receive, it's not true. It's all coming from your local tax or business rates. And then there'll be some money for social care. So that's, that's, Joe, that's, that's Joe's job. Yeah. A big job, very, very busy job. Uh, in, and it all applies to the kind of 450,000 people who, uh, who live in the city of Liverpool. So to go back to the West Wing, you know, and Leo McGarry, uh, they sort of talk about how, you know, the chief of staff, he has a constituency of one. What is your role like in terms of interpreting the vision and turning it into actual action? That's, because we are a little bit different from America. So there is there are differences in, in, in terms of the staffing structure, if you will. But yeah, the, the way I describe it is there are two parts to my job. One part is making sure that the practicalities are done. The mayor gets to where he needs to be with his briefing notes and his speeches and whatever else he needs to, to do the job he's supposed to do in the meeting or event or speech or whatever that he's supposed to do, and then he gets back safely. He will probably tell me I do a terrible job of that, but you know, so that's that's kind of one half of the job. And then the other half job, the other half of the job is about uh, his priorities. Now, you know, you've got to give Joe his credit. He, he's a very uh, he's a very good politician, but you know, he's very very uh, he latches on very very easily onto what it is that people want or, or, or need and so on. So, you know, he's, he's not prepared to stand there while some academic gives him a presentation about what the people of Liverpool want, wants or needs. You know, it, it's, uh, he's, he's quite accurate in that, in that gut sense of what he wants. So the other half of my job is about getting narrow priorities kind of happening and done and through the system. Now, the bit where it's different to America is, uh, you know, in the White House, you've got the president, you've got the chief of staff, and basically everybody reports to the chief of staff. Basically, uh, that's you know, we've obviously got a, a chief executive in the council. Um, we've got an entire staffing structure around the council. There are directorates, um, and they report to the, the chief executive. We have a very kind of codified constitutional structure to local government in this country. Mm. So they don't all report to me. To me, my job is more about the influence of getting the council to do the Joe's priorities. Uh, while we have thousands of staff all doing their jobs um, of, of picking up the bins and doing the streets and so on and so on and so on. Um, so it's, it's about bringing together the right you know, people so we can get those priorities done and put them in the, in the right place and make them happen. I mean, my, my, my experience was on a very small scale, but when I was managing the Tory campaign in Southport, yeah. I, was, I was sort of had a chief of staff role on that, yeah, involved yeah. everything from being chief strategist to firefighter to peacemaker to yeah. um, sorting out crises and then presenting the solution to the boss yeah. who would then bless it and sort of everything. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, and I get all of that. And obviously, the mayor is the mayor. Ca- you know, simply cannot respond personally to every single uh, phone call, letter, email that that is made of him. So me and my team do a lot of that response and picking up and. And responding, and, and and obviously we talk to Joe about you know the, almost everything really. Mm-hmm. He, he has a sense of everything that's come through his office, but on a practical level, you know, he, you know, he, he he cannot respond on his own, and you know, and yeah, and I'll take a lot of meetings myself, and we'll work out the plans, but uh, so as to avoid the mayor having them, yeah. um, and then we elevate them to the mayor at the at the right time in the right place mm-hmm. for the best call on his time, really, because mm-hmm. you know he's a. There's a, there's a lot of calls on his time. There's a lot of pressure on his diary, um, but yeah, and it is all about that. And and I think sometimes as well, 
there's the nature of so the mayor himself is all about making things happen yeah so he he's, he's making things happen for yeah. the city but a lot of the time we're there when something else goes wrong somewhere else and it, and it could be and it could be nothing to do with the council you know people something goes wrong and they're just like oh where can we turn to help so we do spend a lot of our time just responding to things that have gone wrong that need help in sorting them out and fixing them and that and like I said that's not always in the council so that can be all kinds of things that have nothing to do with us so in recent years there's been a lot of talk about how mayors are the future of politics um, there have been books like Benjamin Barmer's um, If Mayors Ruled the World yeah. in the US sort of Michael Bloomberg and Eric Garcetti are sort of national figures uh, and David Cameron sort of tried to bring the trend to Britain but I, I, I think you'll find mayors were written to the original legislation that Tony Blair introduced but you know for, for London there wasn't the it's, it's there oh, okay. alright but I think with Cameron also is that he sort of shifted the burden of deficit reduction onto yeah. local authorities. Yeah. Here, since 2010, I think, council spend per head has been reduced by like nearly £400 uh, in Liverpool. Yeah, it, um, uh, yeah I, I'm, not, I'm not sure on head. I think I read that, but uh, that might be government's numbers, which we inherently discuss. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, it, it's 64% yeah. of our funding. I mean, yeah. that, that, you know, that's what it comes down to, 64%. And that's the number we're talking about. And it's, um, uh, and it's 444 million from our, our, our budget, yeah. our, our kind of real-time budget. So, yeah. The, the sort of wider problem you have is that you have to provide a range of services, but the government says you can only raise a certain amount in, in a limited number of ways, which forces you to make cuts that you don't agree with. How do you reconcile the rhetoric about sort of decisive, powerful mayors with the sort of grim reality of local government in Britain? Uh, well, I think it's I think it's very difficult because I think the I think this government, well, the the, the previous government since two thousand ten, and then obviously the, the Conservative government on their own since two thousand fifteen. I don't I don't think they've been interested in reconciling that themselves. Yeah, and and I don't think they've necessarily been entirely honest about what they're doing. So if we think back about 12 months when there was a lot of talk about adult social care and heading into crisis, we saw similar language kind of beginning of this year about children's social care, because this year that's where the focus has been. But last year, and like I said before, I think personally, I, I think most people thought adult, uh, social care was being delivered in some form by the NHS nationally. Tory you know, ministers took over. They started cutting, 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 cutting budget for local government. Uh, it's not talked about much, but they've been very clear. Local government grant, or revenue support grant, that it, that it was it's called, it will not exist by 2020, right? So this isn't about, oh, they've changed the formula. Or, they've removed the formula. By 2020, there will be no national government funding for most of the things you expect a local government to deliver. Now, social care, they when when local government started saying, "Well, hang on, what? Yeah, but how can how can we provide this social care when you've taken all our money away?" and the system started to to, to bend and creak under that, then they came up with some extra money for social care. But in, only until twenty twenty, you see, there is still no permanent funding fix for funding for social care. It, it's not there. So by twenty twenty. 
if we're looking at the projections for our funding, we have to work on the basis currently that there will be no social care funding because it only runs until 2020. Now, I don't know how you reconcile this idea of um, we're going to take away all your money. <laughs> oh, but, you know, if you have a mayor, you'll be... Now, I'm, I'm a fan of the mayoral system. I think it's right, you know. I think Joe punches through all kinds of bureaucratic... Um, I don't want to say nonsense, that's a bit disrespectful to the staff, but it's a sense of sometimes bureaucracy can can want to do its own thing yeah. and and having a mayor who can go, no, you, I, I'm a mayor, I set the priorities, do X. Mm. And I think that's, that's vastly important to the, the efficiency of the system and to the responsiveness of the system to the needs of the people. I'm a big fan of the mayoral system. But Joe can't spend money he doesn't have. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, that's the way it is. Now, and, and by law, you can't run deficits? We can't run deficits. You know, the Joe, uh, Joe is introducing a more commercial approach within the council. We are looking at how can we be more commercial in what we do? Are there, are there better ways of doing things, um, more imaginative, more innovative ways of doing things? And I think another advantage of the mayoral system is that he is able to make the staff respond to a new way of working I think that's a strength of the system to uh, sorry yeah strength of the mayoral system that he can he can do that and he's, he's very uh, interested and in, in, in demanding of, of making us rethink the way we do things it's another uh, kind of that, that is less well-known successes but fundamentally it comes down to Liverpool's a poor city whether we like it or not you know 70 percent uh, uh, no, it's probably 77%, I think, of all our housing is in council tax bands A and B. Literally the cheapest, you know, most affordable housing there is, with the lowest council tax returns. The number in London is 17. This is a structural problem for our economy that is as a result, that is because we are a poor city. And when government removes all our money... The, the councils that benefit are the ones that are wealthy. And that's yeah. that's where there's no fairness, there's no equality in this. And then when government turns around and says, oh, we want you to do this, we want you to do that, it's like, well, with what money? Yeah. And I do think people's understanding of what is the minimum basic statutory functions of a council is also quite poor, understandably. You have to be really geeky to, under, to know that. Right, but government, is, it, you know, government has literally decided to turn around and say, we're not even going to give you enough to manage the minimum statutory services you're supposed to run. It's like, how do you square that circle? And that, and this is why we've seen Northamptonshire, you know, buckle under it. And, you know, the, the people, the people, you know the, the reporting is that there are other councils who are going to do the same. It is worth saying Liverpool tackled the problem very, very early on. We were one of the first ones to start budgeting for these things. So we're not, you know, we're, we're not in that danger of that financial chaos of going bankrupt or anything like that but we've had to make very difficult decisions for a very long time and people you know that there are less services for people as a result what's your job like trying to reconcile the two well it i mean it's difficult i mean it's difficult i mean we're talking about services that have staff delivering it yeah so we've got staff out on the road and you know what there there aren't enough people fixing potholes on the road There, there aren't enough people cleaning the streets you know Joe has been very honest with people about this. What, what we are trying to do in the, in the mayor's office is explain to people why that is, because uh, we, we have to get people's expectations in the right place. Joe has been 
stunningly honest with people about what the impact of these things are and what it means. But, you know, obviously people still, when people start, you know, they drive around yeah, and they yeah, see yeah. it and they get angry and it's like, well, do you know what? We're angry too. So, you know, kind of our role in that is about trying to explain to people and, and get that understanding out there. Uh, there was a very good long essay in the London Review books last year called The Strange Death of Municipal England. Right. And an argument, uh, a point that the, the author makes is the... Where's the Liverpool Review of books? <laughs> yeah. A point he makes is that sort of the Attlee government's nationalisations nationalised a lot of municipally owned mm. yeah. um, sort of water and gas and electricity yeah. things, yeah. which removed a significant amount of yeah. income from yeah. you know uh, councils. Given uh, Corbyn's talk of renationalisation of you know yeah. monopolies, yeah. Do you think it's an idea that actually Labour should look at the municipalisation of those services as a way to bring extra income into local government again? Yeah, and I think John McDonnell has talked about that previously, um, but obviously then you also get this talk about nationalisation, and, uh, and I think you know the Labour Party still needs to work out some of the detail around yeah. the, the, those policies and, and some of those tensions. Um, but that that is that is this country's record of the, its approach to municipal government. Uh, America has not done it. Yeah, yeah. Um, America, the most capital, you know, economically liberal country in the world. Um, most of its local government owns the business. You know, kind of significant percentage yeah. of business. It's kind of like you know, a lot of key core businesses are owned by the state in America, and it's quite counterintuitive. But compared to here, you know, we're actually more liberal when it comes to that kind of stuff. We, as a as a council, are very interested in. You know, it's one of the things Joe wants us to look at is, you know, are there, are there new things we can go? But, yeah, if we own the water company and so on, what, what, what would we be able to do? I mean, these are all big what-ifs. Yeah. But, yeah, for the last however many decades, this country has gone on a centralising pathway. Um, and it's, and I think actually it's quite, it's quite weakening for the, for the nation. Mm. Um, especially... Primarily because I think one of the most dangerous aspects of it is is that our decision makers sit in London with no knowledge of what local government is a doing or be capable of, and these and it's kind of there's just this you know that's the point I was making about social care. I I, I genuinely think probably a Tory minister sat at his desk and was reading a briefing and then kind of looked up from his desk and went, wait a minute, you mean? Local government runs social care, and I genuinely think it was a surprise to them. I, I think they were like, there was this moment of, oh, I didn't realise that. And it's like, <laughs> you've got literally thousands of civil servants whose job it is to tell you this, but the civil servants are just as sheltered as anyone else. I, you know, there is this complete blindness. It is the London centralising. Uh, that's been another of my key drivers in my life. Is that that said? But you know, take. Um, a friend of mine posted on Facebook, yes, last night, and he was talking about how he'd been at a security seminar and and he'd been talking about how he was doing something with another city in another part of the world and someone from one of the security services came up to him afterwards and said, we, we weren't aware that you were talking to these cities. Do, do you not think we should be you know, a little more concerned or aware from a security perspective? And he wrote on Facebook about how he's... he's Doing, he's off doing something else in an, in another city, another part of the world. He didn't say which one. I don't know, but he was having to do kind of his own security analysis from because the 
you know, kind of the, the security services in London, the civil service in London, are simply just completely un- unaware of the fact that we as cities are talking to other cities in other parts of the world. And there's a whole security network is set up to, to like monitor and stop what's going on in, in central government. Yeah. And they kind of turn around and go, oh, what do you mean you're talking to the city in Russia or whatever? And it's like, yeah, yeah, but hi, you know, we're here, we're doing stuff, you know. And, and you know, we talk about post-Brexit. We are, you know, our networks around the world as Liverpool are, are vast and we are desperately trying to exploit them for economic benefit for the city. Brexit, if, if you're going to properly respond to Brexit... Start with the relationships you already have with other parts of the world. And do you know what? Cities have them, not central government. And it's kind of like, but can you get Dexit or whatever the department's called to realise that maybe you, they should put some investments? I'm on a massive rant now, aren't I? This is just turning into a huge rant. But, you know, it, there, was a, there was a blindness going on in central government to what local government is doing. And I think it weakens our nation that they're slow in, in, in waking up to that. I mean, that, well, that, it kind of touches on the next question, which is that um, as, as part of this idea of some of the all-powerful, decisive mayor, the expectation from central government is that the mayor focuses on business and regeneration and development and everything like that. And Mayor Anderson has really focused on making Liverpool business-friendly. Yeah. Um, but that's also been accompanied by some controversial redevelopment and you know, um, UNESCO threatens to take away the city's world heritage status. Uh, but according to them, uh, sort of all the obligations which come with that status sort of inhibit investment. Are you managing the tensions between these different visions for Liverpool? Or do you think this is our vision, we're doing it, and we'll sort of deal with any unintended consequences later because right now um, those would be nice problems to have? There, there, there definitely is an answer to that. You know, the mayor's been very clear. We're not going to, you know, the, the the future economy of our city is 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 a priority, and and I, and I guess by extension, you, you you then deal with the the problems outside of that. The the problem with UNESCO is that, like, if I was to ask you to tell me why we have UNESCO World Heritage Site status, what would your answer be? I know only because I did research, <laughs> but before but before I did the research, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, and and I do think uh, because I think a lot of people assume World Heritage Site status is for all the lovely old buildings we've got, yeah. and that is a part of it. It's maybe about half of it, and we are rightly very very proud of all of our old buildings, and we should and we should preserve them um, because they you know they clearly make Liverpool. A wonderful and attractive place to live and invest and so on. They're, they're, they're assets. The waterfront itself is an asset. I think the problem around uh, the UNESCO in part has come from the other half, which is it's the dock system that is part of the World Heritage Site. Now, how do you preserve a, a system that is hidden away within the brickwork of, of a bunch of docks? It, it becomes that becomes a much more difficult thing. And what, uh, and I honestly think that part of the way, reason we've got to where we are today is because UNESCO didn't actually want to talk to us about what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, and part of our frustration was, you know, we have, we have issued so many invitations to UNESCO to come and look at what we're doing and talk to us, mm-hmm. and it never went anywhere. So, you, so you, you know, there is, this, there, there is this tension where you kind of, we're kind of going, 
well, come and talk to us about this. Come and see what we're doing, or you know, and we won't really get anything. Now, a lot of that has changed. Um, we've had we've had more visits. We've had conversations with them. It's much more constructive, I think, um, uh, which is which is also the good. We will have to see what they make of the report that we we submitted uh, recently. But it is that I I don't I guess really it boils down to is do you think it's reasonable for a city that desperately needs economic development mm. to accept a situation where half of its city centre, which is has nothing built on it, mm. because because it it surrounds a dock. I mean, what the hell does a dock system mean? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like it's so nebulous. And that because of that, you're not supposed to build anything on it. You know, and that last year they told us to stop all planning applications, which we're not even sure we could comply with legally, yeah? And, and that's, that's one hell of an ask of a city that is looking for economic development. We've got empty space. It's, it's, it's kind of an extension of the city centre, which is right where you want to put your economic development. And it's a hell of an ask to ask us to preserve in aspic a wasteland forevermore mm. you know that's that was and I think what you know that's the point Joe is essentially trying to make it what well, we have priorities yeah you know our, our, our people need feeding better housing better better health and key to all these things is giving them better jobs and we're supposed to just stop on that journey uh, you know it kind of ignored the human cost of, of what was being asked of us so those tensions you know, were quite major. Uh, another area where the sort of a tension between the idea of an all-powerful mayor and sort of the, the reality, yeah, as, as you've touched on already, which is homelessness and um, rough sleeping. Yeah. Um, yeah. The number of people sleeping rough in England has increased by 30% since yeah. 2010. Um, and in Liverpool, the number doubled between 2015 and 2016. Andy Burnham, the Manchester mayor, has said that rough sleeping is a national crisis and sort of requires a sort of a national coordinated response. Yeah. How is Liverpool approaching this and um, what can you do with the restrictions that are placed on you by sort of outside events? And like yeah, look, Andy Burnham's right, it is a national crisis because uh, when you if, you, if you start trying to look at the, the some of the core problems here, the... The, the lack of uh, the, the withdrawal of funding cuts and people and people go why, why the cuts it's kind of like well the, the reduction in mental health facilities and services the, the, the reduction in kind of drugs treatment and alcohol treatment programs these 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 have a massive impact on how people's lives do or do not descend into uh, a, a situation where their, their lives are, you know, are, are put in a crisis, and not having the ability to intervene in people's lives for very severe and complex health-related problems. Um, yeah, I guess you call it health-related problems. You know, that's what stops people from being homeless in the first place, and that and that is, you know, that's why this is a national problem. People would expect me to talk about how you know Joe's done a great job, and so I, you know I get that you know some people are going to turn off just because of that. But um, if you look at what we've done, Joe's the, the strength of Joe's response is is literally I, I'm willing to put myself out there on this the strongest in the country. Mm-hmm. Now it, it 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 is on one level quite a complex problem. So some of what I'm going to say here is 
it's like a bit complex, but hopefully I, I can explain it in a way that does make a bit sense. But what we have done is we have created a, a in Labray House a it, it's it's a shelter overnight, but it's also there's an approach behind that, and we are the only city in the country to have this approach, right? So we are literally the most open and and, and accessible service for rough sleepers in the country. Nobody else has this, right? And I mean that. No, you, you cannot find anyone else in the country that has this. And the way we've done it is by... So government legislation means you have to have some... What's called a sit-up um, facility for people to go. There are restrictions on who... There are restrictions on who you can provide a service to full stop. And that comes to what's called no recourse to public funds. So if you're a failed asylum seeker or even you're an Eastern European but you've come over here and you don't have a job, then you have what's called no recourse to public funds. And that means that we as a council are legally not supposed to give you a service, right? And what that means is they end up sleeping on the streets and we're stuck in a horrible situation where legally we're not supposed to help them, right? And then you have what's called a cold weather shelter. Now, I think the legal minimum for cold weather shelter is that if the temperature drops below minus two for three days in a row, right? So three days three days into it, you are supposed to open a cold weather shelter. It's a humanitarian response. Anyone can go in. But if you think about it, minus two, three days in a row, I mean, that's that's quite a high bar, really. You know, we, we, we're not a Scandinavian country. That's very rare. What Joe did is he changed that to as soon as the temperature drop below two degrees on the first day, which is the most relaxed rule of anywhere in the country. Even Andy Burnham has pledged to change it to zero, yeah? So even Manchester still doesn't have a policy as good as ours. But then we looked at it and we said, this is all stupid. We need, we need 24-hour shelters. So we now have a shelter open every single night. Joe has publicly said we will ignore the no-recourse public funds rule. So anybody who needs help can go into our shelter anytime. Whitechapel is open during the day, 8 till 8, and then 8 till 8 at night is Labrae House on Camden Street. And the end goal will be one centre that will just be open 24 hours a day, and we're, we're moving towards that. Joe, it, Joe's vision for Labrae House also is that we will ultimately end up with all the different agencies in the same building. So if you are a rough sleeper or a homeless person, you go into through you, you walk through one door. You can be looked after. They'll help you get a house. They'll look after you know uh, referrals direct to the mental health facilities that are there and so on and so. You know, kind of it, it's a one stop shop for everything. Nobody else, not, literally nobody else, is trying to do that. And and it, you know, it's it's really to this city's credit that we've done it. And the city has a heart of gold and you know is is desperate to want to help rough sleepers and so on uh, and it's to our city's credit that we've got this kind of response and it is partly that but it's also about envisioning uh, it the, the problem in part comes from is that and we so we do very detailed surveys every single night yeah somebody walks the streets every single night and counts everybody they see and possibly as much as two-thirds of the people you see have a home are not homeless and are just begging and how we deal with that is tricky because people's vision of what the problem actually is is much much larger than the problem but when people say oh we we've got tons of empty buildings let's open them it's like well actually 
We don't need to do that because there is somewhere for them to go. There is always somewhere for them to go. We call it always room inside. Mm. There is always room inside. They can come in. There is somewhere for them to go. So we don't need to do that response. The tricky bit, though, is once you've got them in that door, how do you move them through? And that's where, uh, we, again, we have lots of services, but we're continuously having to learn the lessons. But it is about providing a whole wraparound care, each individual person specific to them, as we try and move them uh, into her housing and a normal life. And again, Joe is very, very keen. Um, so it's a little bit like wait for this announcement soon, but you know, it, there is this... We are trying to work with businesses in the city so that when people go through our services, we can also look to give them home, but also some form of work opportunities or training so that we can give them hope as well. That's the way Joe says it. Let's give them hope as well. And then people can hopefully move off the streets into their own lives. Well, Trace, thank you very much. Sorry, that wasn't, that was, was that too long and boring? And no, it was, yeah. no, it was great. <laughs> I want to thank Trace for sparing the time to talk to me. If you want to know what I thought of the interview, sign up to our new mailing list. Just send me an email saying you'd like to join. You can find our address in the show notes. Again, if you have a spare fiver and want to help Open Country, then click the link to our Crowdpack page on the show notes and donate. If you want to keep your fiver but still want to help us, rate and review us on iTunes. It does more than you may think.